Now take your Bibles, please, and turn to the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4. Now you may be using an electronic Bible of some kind, and that's fine. Uh, But if you're holding in your hand a paper Bible, I want you to do something before we come to the reading, depending on the formatting and the pagination of your Bible. Just look at Malachi chapter 4 and then look at the next page, or turn the page. And you see the New Testament, and you see the Gospel according to Matthew. And that little turn of the page that you just did represents the passage of four centuries. I just want to remind you of that before we come to the text, because Malachi was the last prophet of the Old Testament. There were a couple of other books inspired by the Holy Spirit that were later than Malachi, but those were historical books, essentially. Uh, So the last prophetic utterance that we have from Almighty God before this extended period of silence, before this time when the curtain closes on the Old Testament, is right here before us tonight. So bear that in mind as we come to this and uh, give careful attention to this because it is the very Word of God. Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Thus far, the reading of God's word. And thus far, the scriptures of the Old Testament. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word to us now. Father, speak to our hearts, we pray. We ask for the ministry of your Holy Spirit, that he would be our teacher tonight as we we consider this passage of your Holy Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us have written and then signed letters or even emails, perhaps, and then added something to the letter or the message once we'd already signed our name at the bottom uh, and we do that for a couple of different reasons. Uh, sometimes we, uh, we forgot to say something before we signed off. Next thing you know, we put our signature at the bottom, and then we remember, oh, I meant to tell them something else, and so we add that in. Or, you know, sometimes we just add the P.S. intentionally uh, because it's an, oh, by the way, and just one, other, one last thing. Um, and that, when, when we do that to a letter or a a message of some kind. It's, it's called a postscript, and we abbreviate it P.S. And many commentators refer to these final verses, specifically these three verses, these last three verses of Malachi, as a, um, as a postscript. And these verses can be considered a P.S. to the book of Malachi, uh, to all the minor prophets, to the whole body of the minor prophets, the twelve. And in a sense, these are a P.S. to the entire Old Testament. 
I think they're intended that way by God. Um, because for, for one thing, as we've already stated, Malachi was the last prophetic voice of the Old Testament. The next prophet to rise up is going to be John the Baptizer. It's going to be that long before someone rises up and has fresh, special revelation from God, someone who could stand up and say, thus says the Lord. So that's one thing. And then you notice there's reference to two very, very important Old Testament figures in these three verses. They speak of Moses, who's sort of the embodiment of and the representative of the law, and they speak of Elijah, who in, in many cases is sort of the quintessential prophet or the representative of all the prophets. And so in the New Testament, when we hear Jesus or others speaking of the law and the prophets, that's shorthand for the whole Old Testament scriptures. And so Gordon Hugenberger, writing in the New Bible Commentary, said, Elijah stands alongside Moses in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, as the representative of the entire Old Testament line of prophets, much as he functions on the Mount of Transfiguration, where the two witnesses are patterned after Moses and Elijah. They represent God's revelation from the Old Testament. And to sum up the message of these three verses that close out the Old Testament, they teach us that the Lord demands that his people be obedient and prepared. The Lord demands that his people be obedient and that they be prepared. <clears throat> Three points this evening are final instructions that we'll see in verse 4. The Elijah who is to come, who we'll see in verse 5, and then the ministry of recon reconciliation from verse 6. So, final instructions. In the Bible... And throughout the Old Testament, you find numerous admonitions to remember. God's continually speaking to his people and calling them to remember things. One of the most notable ones is uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon writes this extended treatise, which to some people sounds rather cynical, much less uh, upbeat than say perhaps some portions of the book of Proverbs, but as he comes to the end of this great work, the book of Ecclesiastes, he starts chapter 12 by saying, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Remember your Creator, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes. And there are similar admonitions, exhortations to remember all through the scriptures, Old and New Testament. <clears throat> Here in the ending of Malachi, the, the admonition is to remember God's law. Now why is it so important that God prod us and exhort us to remember his law? Well, first of all, because we're so tragically prone to forget. We're continually forgetting. It's because of our fallen nature to some extent. It's because of our frailty and the limitations of, of our human nature. 
could go on, but the fact is, for various reasons, we are prone to forget, and so God keeps having to say, remember. And here he says, remember my law. He also encourages us to remember his law because to live in accordance with the law of God is for our good. We become very anti-law, I think, a lot of times in our thinking. But we need to be reminded not only of God's law, but of the fact that his law is good for us and that abiding by it is good for us. And so when God is reviewing his law with his people in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 13, he, he tells them, keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. It's not just that God wants to boss you around and, and ruin all your fun. He gives you commands that are beneficial. So that's another reason we're to remember God's law. <clears throat> and then another very important reason that would have been uh, that, the, that the people of Malachi's day would have been acutely aware of is that failure to remember God's law and failure to obey it is exactly what had landed them in the situation they were in at that time. It was forgetting the Lord their God, forgetting his commandments that had led to the fall of Israel, had brought ruin upon God's people. And whereas they were once a great and numerous and mighty nation, now they were just this ragtag group of, of a remnant, survivors, huddled in their land again, but only a, a shadow of what they had been, all because they had forgotten God's law, all because they had forgotten the Lord himself. Now the word remember obviously has sort of a, a cognitive uh, sense to it, but in its fuller sense, to remember, and particularly to remember God's law, means to act upon the knowledge of God that we have and of his works. So it's not just remembering in, in that simple sense, but it's remembering and then doing. All of Israel, the entire nation, <clears throat> had heard and had ratified what we could call the covenant code or the book of the covenant. They were at the foot of Mount Sinai. God thundered from the fire at the top of the mountain. He gave them the Ten Commandments. And the people were so terrified, they said, don't let God speak to us anymore. Moses, you go up the mountain and get the words of the Lord and bring them to us. Tell them and we'll obey them. But don't let God speak anymore or we're going to die. That's how terrifying the experience was for them. And so Moses goes up on the mountain. He brings back the, what they call the... the um, the book of the covenant, it's Exodus 20 through 23, essentially. And the people hear it, and they said, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. So they, as a people, for themselves and for their posterity, ratified that covenant code. And they did it not just once, but they did it a second time. After they'd wandered in the wilderness because of their disobedience, for 40 years, they were on the banks of the Jordan on the verge of going into the land finally, and Moses, uh, before he died, had them reaffirm the book of the covenant. So they ratified it a second time, and I say again, it was not only for themselves, but it was for their children and their children's children. And so Israel was a people that were bound by oath to obey the commandments of God.
and yet it uses the word here, remember, and I think part of the reason is memory is a key to obedience. I came across Psalm 78. It happened to be what I read this morning in my devotions, and it speaks directly to this very thing. Psalm 78, if you'll turn there, Psalm 78 is a a rather lengthy psalm, and it's not a very happy one because it's a history of all of the numerous times that the people of Israel rebelled against God, how they forgot his commandments, how they forgot him and turned away, and the consequences they suffered for that. Now, if you look at Psalm 78 and follow along, I'll read the first several verses. Psalm 78, a masculine of Asaph, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So two quick points of application for us before we go on. Remember God's works and praise him for them. He's done mighty works in your life. Remember those. Remember those times when you've prayed earnestly to him about some big concern and he answered graciously and kindly. Don't forget about those things. Remember them and continue to give him thanks for them. Remember God's works and praise him. Secondly, remember God's commandments and keep them. Malachi's prophecy frequently refers to the law of Moses. And this closing exhortation is consonant with the rest of his message. He's spoken many times about Moses and the law. And when we say Moses in the Old Testament, particularly uh, in, the, uh, in the prophets, <clears throat> that's shorthand really for all the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible because there are five of them, Genesis through Deuteronomy, we call them the Pentateuch. And since the Pentateuch includes Genesis, to say, remember the law of my servant Moses, that really just takes us from from right at the end of the Old Testament all the way back to the beginning. It ties the whole Old Testament together. So here, at the close of the Old Testament... As God is kind of signing off in terms of prophetic utterance for a time, his parting words are a final call to obedience. He is the Lord, and he demands that his people be obedient. So those are his final instructions. He goes on to speak of Elijah to come in verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Malachi prophesied four centuries before John 
but he prophesied four centuries after Elijah. Elijah's been gone for 400 years. And yet here, through his prophet Malachi, God says, I'm going to send you Elijah. He's coming. Now, you know your Bibles, and you know what happened to Elijah, right? Uh, he didn't die a natural death the way we, we think of it. Uh, he was actually carried away by God in a whirlwind. And because of that, and because all the Jewish people knew that, and the rabbis especially, were, were fully aware that uh, Elijah was carried, carried up into heaven in a whirlwind, lots of superstition surrounded this character of Elijah. And because he didn't die in the way we think of it, <clears throat> some Jews expected a bodily return of Elijah himself. And yet uh, Malachi 4, verse 5, where God says, I will send you Elijah the prophet, is really no different than lots of the references we find in the Old Testament to a future David. You see that all the time. Numerous, numerous examples. Let me give you a couple. Uh, Ezekiel 34, verse 23, God says through the prophet there, I will set up, he's speaking of his people here, he says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now David was the great king. He was the quintessential king. And uh, so God says, I'm going to set David over you. But I don't, I'm not aware that there are any superstitious beliefs that David was going to come back from the dead and actually literally bodily reign again. Similar thing is said in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 9. <clears throat> God is speaking of a future when he's going to restore his people, and he says in that day they're going to serve David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now again, uh, if we were to apply the same interpretation to this as some people applied to Malachi 4 or 5, we could say, was David going to come back? Is God going to raise him up? Well, no. And, and we know in New Testament perspective that he's talking about Jesus Christ, the son of David, a descendant of David. And the same interpretive approach very reasonably applies here. So when God says, I will send you Elijah the prophet, God is saying, I'm going to send you someone who's comparable to him, someone who's like him in many ways. In fact, you know, you read in the New Testament, John even dressed like Elijah. Elijah wore a, a garment of, of camel's hair. John did the same thing. He, they both wore a leather belt around their waists. And so when John appeared, he even dressed the way the scripture said Elijah did. So there's a com comparison there and a and a, a, a certain likeness. But this Elijah to come was none other than John. And again, after Malachi, the very next prophet to appear was John, baptizing in the wilderness of Judea. And the New Testament repeatedly affirms that John the baptizer was the Elijah to come. Uh, the angel Gabriel's prophecy to Zechariah, Luke 1, 17 Gabriel speaking to Zechariah says, uh, you're going to have a son, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And then Jesus himself gave testimony about John. In Matthew eleven fourteen. people are asking him questions, and 
And he gives some answers, and he follows up one statement that he makes with this statement. And he says, if you are willing to accept it, he, John, is Elijah who is to come. Or if you want to look at a slightly more extended discourse from the Lord Jesus about John, turn to Matthew 17, and it's just the next book over, right? Matthew 17, starting in verse 10. As they're coming off of the uh, Mount of Transfiguration and, and Peter, James, and John had seen Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus there and they were talking with him, then the vision is ended and they're coming down the mountain and the disciples asked him in verse 10, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Jesus answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Verse 13, Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute here. Some people even asked John himself, are you Elijah? And he said, no, that's true. Uh, They were scribes and Pharisees sent from Jerusalem to John, and they wanted to know what in the world he was doing, what business did he have baptizing here in the wilderness. And they asked him if if he was Elijah, and he said no. And so if that puzzles you, or if that seems like an inconsistency, uh, just understand that John was answering them on the basis of or in reference to that popular superstition that Elijah was going to come back from the dead or come, come down from heaven. And John says, I am not that. Because later they said, well, if you're not the prophet, if you're not John, then who are you? And he says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the ways of the Lord. So, the future prophet, coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, would signal the arrival of the Messiah, or in New Testament terms, the arrival of the Christ. That's what Malachi had already prophesied back in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So the messenger is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And that's what John did. He came preaching and proclaiming, prepare the way of the Lord. <laughs> so not only, not only does the Lord demand that his people be obedient, he demands that they be prepared. But then finally, we learn a little bit in verse 6 about this, the, the ministry of Elijah to come, and we find that it's a ministry of reconciliation. <clears throat> verse 6, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So here's a description of the work of Elijah to come, and his work is simply this, turning hearts. The ESV uses the word turn there. The word translated turn, the Hebrew word uh, in this form means to bring back. And so it speaks of repentance. 
This is a form of the, the main Old Testament Hebrew word for repentance or, or returning. It's the word shuv. And th- that's the word that's used here and translated turn because it means to return or it can mean to turn or to turn back. So it speaks of repentance. It speaks of restoration. You remember back at the beginning of chapter 4 of Malachi when we read about the, the sun of righteousness that was going to rise it's going to rise with healing in its wings. And that turning back uh, carries a sense of that with it too. Sort of a restoration to health, a turning back to health and wellness in the spiritual sense. So when it says he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and vice versa, he's speaking of repentance, he's speaking of restoration and reconciliation. So that... The reference to fathers and their children or their sons kind of encompasses the whole community. So one of the uh, commentators writing on this passage said, turning of hearts of fathers to children and so on refers not so much to family discord as to covenant renewal with the Lord. And remember when we read in Luke 1, Verse 17, about the angel speaking to the father of John the Baptist. What we have there in that verse, it's very helpful because it's a Holy Spirit-inspired interpretation of or explanation of this passage from Malachi. Malachi says he'll turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. The way it is uh, presented in Luke, it says he will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So that's one shade of meaning in what we read there in Malachi. This is the kind of reconciliation and restoration and repentance that Elijah to come was going to bring about. Well, what about this sort of ominous-sounding reference to striking the land with a decree of utter destruction? Your version might say, strike the land with a curse. I believe that's the way that King James used to read lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. What does that mean? Well, it's, this is a statement of, about what God is going to accomplish through his messenger. And notice what it says. He will turn hearts. In other words, this Elijah to come will accomplish the Lord's purposes. He's not going to fail. He's going to succeed So when it says, lest I come, is not so much a threat hanging over the people's heads. It means that I, the Lord, may not come. And so this becomes a message of hope. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, lest I strike the land. So this coming prophet is going to minister in such a way as to avert the catastrophe of God's curse. He's going to usher in covenant renewal. He's going to reconcile the people to one another, but most important of all, he's going to be the harbinger of the one who will come and reconcile man to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We say very often that the entire Old Testament points to Christ, and here is the concluding testimony of the Old Testament, pointing to him. So these verses are a 
a brief but a crucial closing statement or a PS to Malachi and to the Old Testament scriptures. And I think there are a few key applications for us today. First, <coughs> brothers and sisters, have a high view of God's commandments. Hold them in high regard. Esteem them highly. The Old Testament doesn't close. This is what we're looking at. We're looking at the end of the entire Old Testament, and it doesn't close with anything new or anything innovative. It's a reminder of the old paths. It's a reminder of the abiding will of God. And His will and His intentions for His people haven't changed. His expectations haven't changed. God's character never changes, and so therefore what he wants us to do and how he wants us to live doesn't change either. The moral law is forever binding from age to age. Don't despise it. Don't minimize it. Don't apologize for it. Embrace it. And hold it, hold it in high esteem. Let our hearts say with the heart of the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. Have a high view of God's commandments. Secondly, be prepared. Be prepared to appear before God's judgment seat. <clears throat> Malachi's prophecy, the way I tried to describe it when we started Malachi a while back, I think it's, it's very similar to the, the final scene in Act 1 of God's Word. So after verse 6, of Malachi 4, the, the curtain of special revelation closes, the lights go out, and no more prophets rise up for four centuries. We know this in hindsight, but I don't think it's necessarily clear that the people who heard Malachi's prophecy knew that, okay, this is it. And there won't be any more prophecy for 400 years. Sixteen generations, give or take. And in the same way, neither you nor I know whether today will be our last opportunity to hear and believe the gospel. Just remember, the Lord demands that his people be obedient and be prepared. Be prepared for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way to be prepared. Embrace Christ as he's offered in the gospel. That's the only way to be ready to stand in the day of judgment, in the great day. I'll close with the words of the, uh, the great Old Testament commentators, Kyle and Delich. <clears throat> he said, Malachi thus closes by showing to the people what it is their duty to do if on the day of judgment they would escape the curse with which transgressors are threatened in the law and participate in the salvation so generally desired and promised to those who fear God. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your gracious words, for your kind and gracious warnings. Thank you for your, your law, which is more precious to us than much fine gold. Lord, help us to esteem it highly and daily seek to live according to it. Lord, help us to be ready 
Help us to look ahead and look with eagerness to the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and help us to be ready at any moment to hear the trumpet sound, to be taken into his presence. We rejoice in these truths of your word. We thank you for the prophecy of Malachi and for our time together these past several years in the Minor Prophets. Lord, may we treasure them and treasure all of your word, and may it 